0: Today I want to (coughs) sum up my message in my introduction, and uh, the reason I do it is because (coughs) I only have about 30 pages of notes, and I know I'm not going to go through them all, Uh, it's just too big of a subject, and uh, I have too much material to do, so I'm going to tell you what I'm going to tell you, and uh, then I'll do the best I can from there. My message today is that the most common sin is idolatry, and uh, in my opinion, that is true not only in the world, but also it is true among God's people. You know, God's law, the Ten Commandments, reflect His character. Uh, the worship of created things rather than the Creator of all things is you, you, it it's a naturally i think an affront to the creator to worship the created instead of the creator is is just inconceivable but that's what mankind does the first commandment <coughs> in exodus chapter 20 verse 3 reads like this you shall have no other gods before me now in the commentaries and some of the other uh some of the other um, reference works, uh, they will tell you that this expression, before me, can also be rendered or translated, in my presence, or beside, or except. And so, if we look at it and translate it that way, you shall have no other gods, in my presence, is very significant. Because there are people who think that they can bring in idols and that they can practice idolatry and worship him. So in effect they're saying they can come into his presence by means of idols and idolatrous worship. Or beside me, if we translate it beside me, you shall have no other gods beside me that is excluding him. It's very, very obvious that uh, that is a terrible affront to the Creator and the one who gives us our breath and everything we have. But you know, the second commandment is uh, <clears throat> quite similar, actually. It's a continuation of the thought of the first commandment. Exodus chapter 20, verse 4, we read, "...you shall make, not make unto you any graven image." or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, or that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth, you shall not bow down yourself to them nor serve them. For I, the the eternal your God, am a jealous, uh, that can also be translated zealous, God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children under the third and fourth generation of them that hate me, And showing mercy unto thousands of them that love me and keep my commandments. Now, in this uh, thing, this matter of making a graven image or uh, a picture or an art piece, most of your commentaries will tell you that it's very clear that this was not that. To make a piece of art is not a violation of that command. As a matter of fact, in the wilderness, they will quickly point out, after the plague of serpents, the fiery serpents, probably cobras, or a a, uh, form of the uh, uh, pit viper, Moses made a brazen serpent and held it up. And... Most commentaries will point to that and say, well, it's very clear that the making of an an object of this sort for the purpose of art or in that particular case for another purpose is not a violation of this command. The violation of the command, the, the commandment is saying, you shall not make these images or idols for the purpose of worship to use them as an object of worship in the case of the brazen serpent. I've read <coughs> in a number of commentaries their explanation of why that serpent was uh, was used or why that serpent was uh, <coughs> was made, and I don't agree. I don't agree with their conclusion. My My feeling is, and it's just my opinion, and I'm not trying to tell you that this is Exact. Number one, <clears throat> the cobra was viewed as the, the the symbol of power of royalty in Egypt, the the symbol of the pharaoh, and also as his as his defender. And um, this, the the uh, serpent <coughs> cobra uh, again was also used as a symbol of healing. Just as it is, by the way, today, with the staff of Aesculapius, with the two serpents, or sometimes one, uh, twined about the staff, being a symbol of, um, of medicine, the caduceus. <coughs> and so, <coughs> there is this idea that, that what Moses did was associating with the, the, the God of healing... Or with the symbol of power in Egypt? I think not. I think that the serpent symbolizes or symbolized in that instance the power and the influence which had caused them to sin. And whereby they were punished with this plague of serpents, biting them and destroying many of those people. And so I think that the lesson that God taught through Moses was here is the source of your idolatrous worship this is the source the serpent Satan the devil of your sin and of course of your punishment items as symbols items representing certain ideas or concepts have been used from time immemorial. The sun, the moon, the stars, uh, animals, water creatures, and so on. (coughs) But it is the use those things are put to. And when those items are set up as representation of God, and as symbols which, by which, through which one can worship God, it becomes a violation of the second commandment. Now our attitude toward God's commandment and uh, worship of other gods and objects representing Him is a reflection of our spiritual character, that is, our acceptance of His authority as our Creator. The common Christian world (coughs) knows the commandments prohibit gross idolatry. And if you read any uh, catechism, uh, virtually any work, any uh, uh, commentary on Christianity, they'll all tell you the same thing. The Bible condemns use of idols. (coughs) The Bible condemns objects. "...for in the place of or representing God." And yet, most of the world bows down before graven images, which are created for the purpose of representing God or Christ, or religious thoughts about God and or Christ. The the steeple or the cross are uh, examples which are universal... And any time one holds up a cross, then people automatically think Christian, not realizing, of course, that that cross, that symbol, goes way, way back before the time of Christ, and it represents something that is very despicable, as we'll perhaps see later on. You know, I was reading not too long ago uh, on this subject... And uh, the author was defending the use of icons or idols in religious places of worship on the grounds that since they believe the idol represents the true God, one is not worshiping the idol. You're, You're looking through the object to God. And then I read other literature where... People are, anthropologists are speaking of societies, of civilizations, pagan civilizations, one might say. <coughs> and uh, I read <coughs> that they say that it is ignorant people who suppose that those civilizations were worshiping the object on that totem or. That uh, that totem pole, if you're in here in the Western world, as well as in the islands, they say that the exact same argument that Christians use to defend use of idols as representatives or representations of spiritual thoughts and of God, they say, <clears throat> oh no. We're not worshipping those, uh, they were not worshipping, I should say, those uh, objects of wood or stone, uh, those images. They were not worshipping them as a god, but as a representation of their god. And so that same argument works for both the pagan world and the Christian world. But I don't think this answers the Old and New Testament Scriptures condemning the use of images in worship. Let's go back (coughs) to uh, Leviticus, the book of Leviticus, (coughs) chapter 20, I believe it is. In Leviticus chapter 20, we... uh, we find that God is dealing with some pretty awful sins in Leviticus chapter 20. He starts off in Leviticus chapter 20, verse 1. The Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Again, you shall say to the children of Israel, Whosoever he be of the children of Israel, or of the strangers that sojourn in Israel, that gives any of his seed unto Molech, he shall surely be put to death. The people of the land shall stone him with stones and I will set my face against that man and I will cut him off from among his people because he has given of his seed (coughs) unto Molech. Now, Molech was a a very hideous God because the arms, at least this is the way it has been depicted in artwork, the arms of Molech. Uh, the idol were such that the people there was a, a cauldron in front of him and between his arms and then people would bring their infants as offerings to him, firstborn in particular and they would pass those through the fires the way the scripture puts it it's a nice nice way of, of uh, sanitizing a very horrible crime, they would sacrifice those infants, as a matter of fact, I was reading in some literature the other day that um, <clears throat> that in, uh, archaeologists have found a site or sites in Palestine with thousands of bones, of infants' bones buried by one, one of these Bama or altars, and it is undeniable absolutely undeniable that these are the remains of children offered in sacrifice. They believe, and the literature stated, within the first week of life. Tiny little babies sacrificed to Moloch. And, of course, God told the children of Israel that any man, Moses... Any man who would offer his child to Moloch, or Molech, was to be put to death. And he said, I will set my face against that man and will cut him off from among his people. Because he has given of his seed unto Molech to defile my sanctuary and to profane my holy name. Now, in that sense, God's sanctuary was the nation. God's sanctuary was the land. God's sanctuary was the entirety of the people. And this man would be defiling the whole by his conduct. And if the people of the land do any ways, hide their eyes from the man when he gives of his seed unto Molech and kill him not, then I will set my face against that man and against his family and will cut him off. So if the people don't do it, God says, I will, and all that go whoring after him to commit whoredom with Molech from among their people. And the soul that turns after such as have familiar spirits and after wizards to go whoring after them, I will even set my face against that soul and will cut him off from among his people. What is the major bestseller of children's books Today about witchcraft, and I don't know if you've seen any of the interviews with the author and her defense, and of those who are interviewing her, they—it's uh, it, enough to make one almost sick. Coming on down, though, after going through all of the terrible sins of the people of the land here in Leviticus chapter 20, some of which are unspeakable acts, God said in verse 22, if you therefore, you therefore shall keep all my statutes and all my judgments and do them that the land... Where I bring you to dwell therein, spew you not out. And you shall not walk in the manners of the nations which I cast out before you. For they committed all these things, and therefore I abhorred them. But I have said unto you, you shall inherit their land, and I will give it unto you to possess a land that flows with milk and honey. I am the eternal your God, which have separated you from other people. (coughs) They were to be distinct. They were to be different. Now, when you're different, you stand out and you become, essentially, an object of ridicule and a target. And many people don't want to be different. Even many people who grew up in God's church have chosen not to be different and to go back out into the world and become like the rest of the world. And therefore, they are committing idolatry. In Jeremiah chapter 10, we're all very familiar, but I think it's important that we turn to it at this point and keep it in mind. In Jeremiah chapter 10, thus saith Eternal, verse 2, "'Learn not the way of the heathen, "'and be not dismayed at the signs of heaven.' For the heathen are dismayed at them. Now, in commentaries on the subject of idolatry, we are told that the objects of idolatry are essentially the heavenly bodies, such as the sun, moon, and the stars, and they are animal and Creeping things, animals on uh, land, animals and creeping things. <coughs> now, <in, coughs> not in every case do they worship, in their mind, the bull or the serpent. They think they are worshiping the God and that this symbolizes that God and his power. One commentary says throughout history, mankind has put images as representations of God. As representations of God. That is, as God said in Exodus 20, in my presence or beside or accept me. And man has put things as well, uh, physical things, houses, chariots, Uh, people, husband, wife, rulers, whatever it may be, men have put things ahead of God and have worshipped those things. You know, in the days of Christ, the temple had come to be an object of worship. And I wouldn't be surprised if in uh, our day a physical plant or buildings or grounds did not become an object of worship in the hearts and the eyes of many people. And for that reason, I suspect that God took those things away from His people. Because any time a building... Whether it was dedicated to God, used to worship God, or whatever. When that building became an object of worship, it had to go. And God destroyed a temple that was a hundred times, uh, perhaps a thousand times more rich, more expensive, more elegant than the ambassador auditorium. And he destroyed that. First, he stripped it. (coughs) The, The temple in Jerusalem was stripped of its precious metals, its gold and its silver and many of those precious items before it was ultimately destroyed in 586, 585 B.C. by the Babylonians. In one commentary... Actually, this is in the International Standard Bible Encyclopedia. <clears throat> there is this point. <clears throat> Even earlier, he says, quote, "...than the Babylonian exile, the Hebrew prophets taught that God was not only superior to all other gods, but reigned alone as God, other deities being non-entities. The severe satire of this period proves that the former fear of living demons supposed to inhabit the idols had disappeared." These prophets also taught that the temple, ark, and sacrifices were not essential to true spiritual worship. Example in Jeremiah 3.16, Amos 6.21-25. Those things, once they had become objects of worship instead of a representation of the power of God and glory of God, even those objects were no longer of significance or accepted by god continuing these prophecies produced a strong reaction against the previously popular idol worship though later indications of this worship are not infrequent ezekiel 14:1 is an example isaiah chapter 42 verse 17 and so on during the Maccabean period, the Maccabees taught, the Maccabees practiced, in effect, a new religion. That religion came to be the final resurrection or the final era of the Old Testament church, symbolized by the <clears throat> menorah, the seven-branched candle lampstand. The 7th era of the old testament church began as a renewal and it began in an effort to throw off the worship in which in in many cases had <clears throat> had become so corrupt but even after that restoration if you please ultimately that too descended into decadence and chaos and had to be destroyed in the days of just following Jesus Christ. Malachi said that God doesn't change, Malachi 3:6. I change not, the eternal said. So you, O descendants of Jacob, are not destroyed. Ever since the time of your forefathers you have turned away from my decrees and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord Almighty. But you ask, how are we to return? Will a man rob God? Yet you rob me. But you ask, how do we rob you? In tithes and offerings, he answered. You are under a curse, the whole nation of you, because you are robbing me. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse, and there may, that there may be food in my house." Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty, and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that you will not have enough room for it. The New International Version Translation. Idolatry was the common sin of Israel as a people when they were a unified nation and after they had broken into two independent nations of Judah and Israel. Idolatry is the most insidious and pernicious sin I know. It creeps into the mind and into the heart, and it is extremely deceitful. In Jeremiah chapter 10, (coughs) continuing, he plainly says, the customs of the people, Jeremiah 10, 3, are vanity, very vain, for one cuts a tree out of the forest, the work of the hands of the workmen with the axe. Of course, we are inclined to point to that as the Christmas tree. Uh, Critics say no, not so. However, there clearly was a tree cult. And it went back to ancient Assyria and Babylon. And that is undisputed. The use of a tree whether made in the form of a stock <clears throat> or as a live tree or shaped as an object a human, with a human uh, form attached to it or part of the human anatomy ta- attached to it, is an ancient symbol that permeated the land of Israel and Palestine as they apostatized and became corrupt and worshipped their idols. They raised up these objects on every high hill as a representation of their God. In effect, they were insulting God. A revolting example and an insult to Almighty God. And Jeremiah speaks to this in Jeremiah chapter 17, verse 1. He continues, The sin of Judah is written with a pen, with the point of a diamond it is engraved on the tablet of their heart. Their sin was engraved in their hearts. And on the horns of your altars. So even the, the altars which had been raised up as... "...places of worship, while their children remember their altars and their wooden images..." "...this is those standing obelisks or Asherah or Asherim, by the green trees..." "...so they also use green trees and as well as stalks and, and uh, carved ones, on the high hills. "...oh, my mountain in the field, I will give as plunder your wealth all your treasures..." And your high places of sin within all your borders, and you even yourself shall go let go of your heritage which I gave you, and I will cause you to serve your enemies in the land which you do not know, for you have kindled a fire in my anger which shall burn forever. Thus says the Eternal Cursed is the man who trusts in man and makes flesh his strength whose heart departs from the eternal. For he shall be like a shrub in the desert and shall not see when good comes, but shall inhabit the parched places in the wilderness in a salt land which is not inhabited. You know, I've crossed the, the Arabian desert. <clears throat> it's not a pleasant trip. <clears throat> Even in an air-conditioned automobile, it's not a, uh, a pleasant trip. Well, the only thing you can see for miles and miles... For hours, is camel thorn. Nothing can eat it except apparently camels, and I guess some goats will eat it as well. And even that is, as he describes here, like a shrub in the desert. Blessed is the man, however, conversely, who trusts in the eternal and whose hope is the eternal. For he shall be like a tree planted by the waters, which spreads out its roots by the river, and will not fear when heat comes. When you go across the Arabian desert, there literally are no wells in some areas of the Arabian desert. There are no wells. There is no water under there. Or if it is, it is so deep, they have not been able to recover it. But after you cross the Arabian Desert, you come to the Euphrates River, and I'm talking of northern Arabia and uh, and Syria. And uh, when you come to the beautiful valley, you you're, you come across this tableland of desert and camelthorn. That's all in the world there is. It's just enough moisture comes in the winter time to to cause these things to come up and and put on some some uh, vegetation and uh, blossom out, and and then. The heat hits and they're just, they're, they're dead. They're gone. You come to a rift. And down below is this beautiful valley, well watered by the Euphrates River, like an oasis. This is the contrast Jeremiah is giving us here. I suspect he has seen this. He knew from experience, he, he had crossed this, I suspect. Don't know that, but I suspect that he, he had crossed it. When you go for east from Tadmore across uh, into uh, uh, Mesopotamia. And the sight of those trees is absolutely so refreshing. I may have mentioned before here I don't know. I spent a wonderful Sabbath in a garden on the Euphrates River on the east side as it it is over in Mesopotamia side but a beautiful garden and it was probably a hundred and oh in the sun it was probably 118 to 20 degrees and uh, we walked into this garden uh, with the gardener, caretaker, and this canopy of, that w- uh, was above us. It's, it's almost, uh, the canopy was not quite as high as these beams in this auditorium, probably about four, four feet short of that. But there was a literal canopy above us. These trees had been pruned up for thousands of years, or certainly for a thousand years or more. As a matter of fact, the gardener, caretaker, told us that this garden had been employed by the Assyrian kings as a meeting place to receive tribute from the uh, ancient civilization of Mari, uh, the ancient uh, capital city of Mari, and, uh, and others on the west bank of the Euphrates River. Very, very cool. I mean, the contrast walking into that, it was like walking into a refrigerator almost. Now, it wasn't really, but the difference was uh, probably 20 or 25 degrees, and it felt like it we had walked into a, a cooler. And that's what Jeremiah is describing. In Jeremiah chapter 17, verse 9, Jeremiah, again, in contrasting this uh, <coughs> worship of God and and uh, the problem of humanity, Jeremiah, starting in verse 7, Jeremiah 17, verse 7, "'Blessed is the man that turns trusts rather, in the eternal, and whose hope is the eternal. For he shall be as a tree planted by the waters, and that spreads out her roots by the river,' And shall not see when the heat comes, but her leaf shall be green, and shall not be careful in the year of drought, neither shall cease from yielding fruit. It's a beautiful, beautiful picture that he sees. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? he asks. I, the eternal, search the heart and test the mind, even to give every man according to his ways and according to the fruit of his doings. God is uh, busy. <clears throat> God is concerned about you and uh, me. He is concerned about each and every one who has truly received his Spirit. He's concerned. He is so concerned that he's going to correct. In the book of Ezekiel chapter 14, we read that certain elders of Israel came to see him and sat before him. Ezekiel 14 verse 1, and the word of the eternal came unto me saying, son of man, these men have set up their idols in their heart. And put the stumbling block of their iniquity before their face. Should I be inquired of at all by them? God asks. Now here here were individuals who had their idols in their hearts. Um, Where where does the idol originally come from anyway? Anyway. It has to do with something that's inside the heart. He told Jeremiah, you tell them. Say unto them, thus says the Eternal, the God, Lord God. Every man of the house of Israel that sets up his idols in his heart and puts the stumbling block of his iniquity before his face and comes to the prophet. Now, I, I understand from what he's saying here is that that they haven't removed it. This is what this is saying. They come to me and they have still got this idol or idols in their hearts and the stumbling block. And they come to the prophet and they ask, Well, what does the Lord say? So <clears throat> he said, God said, I, the eternal, will answer him that comes according to the multitude of his idols. Now, that's pretty. Des- that's, I think that's well-deserved, don't you? If he's got so many idols in his heart, and he has not forsaken them, then the answer that he gets is going to be according to what's inside of his heart. Therefore say unto the house of Israel, Thus saith the eternal God, Repent, and turn yourselves from your idols, and turn away your faces from all your abominations. For every one of the house of Israel, or of the stranger that sojourns in Israel, which separates himself from me, and sets up his idols in his heart, and puts his stumbling block of his iniquity before his face, and comes to a prophet to inquire of him concerning me, the Lord will answer him by myself. Uh, I take it that that's, that's, that's almost like uh, <coughs> calling him out at high noon. In effect, that's saying, he will meet me. He wants to hear from you of me. I will meet him and take care of this chore. I kind of think that's what it amounts to. And I will set my face against that man and will make him a sign and a proverb. And I will cut him off from the midst of my people. And you shall know that I am the eternal. And if the prophet be deceived when he has spoken a thing... Oh, it's even possible that that individual might come to the prophet, and the prophet might respond. He said, And if the prophet be deceived when he has spoken a thing, I, the Lord, have deceived that prophet, and I will stretch out my hand upon him, and will destroy him from the midst of my people Israel. And they shall bear the punishment of their iniquity, and the punishment of the prophet shall be even as the punishment of him that seeks unto him. If the prophet is presumptuous, the people are presumptuous, the people will not have the idols removed from within their heart, but they find a minister or a prophet or a priest who will go along with them and will speak to them. God says, like people, like priest. That prophet will inherit the same as the people. You know, <clears throat> today we have in the church of God, I hear people all the time talking about all these hundreds of splits. You know, I'm not persuaded there are hundreds of splits. Are you persuaded that there are hundreds of splits in the church? I'm not. I think there are hundreds of individuals who have left the church. And I am not persuaded that the majority of the church is in one place. Rather, I am persuaded that there are individuals who are doing their own thing. And they are presumptuously doing their own thing. You know, I have known a number of individuals um, in my life, brief as it is, who had this burning desire to be a minister, to teach people. And that was so important to them. You know what that is? You know what that tells me? They have a form of idolatry. They are committing a form of idolatry. If Almighty God does not call and impress one into the ministry, He is presumptuous and committing idolatry to presume to speak for God. And we have seen an awful lot of of people who have presumed to speak for God. They were not appointed, they were not called. They presumed to speak for God. They wanted to be ministers. They coveted that position. And until that idol is removed from their hearts, they've got a problem with him. Because he will meet them. And he will deal with it. You know, I, I've, I'm almost ashamed to tell you this, but when I was in high school, <coughs> one of my brothers, who you may have met at some time, <coughs> was uh, trying to uh, persuade me to go to Ambassador College, and I had a kind of a, an attitude that well, I had had about enough of school. Twelve years was enough. For anybody in those days, I thought, and so I was resisting that and uh, then I had other friends from college or met other students who uh who also pressured me to go to ambassador college and and I resisted and uh you know why because. I thought at that time there, I had three brothers in the ministry, and I thought three was quite enough out of one family. And I didn't want to be the fourth. And look what happened to me. Let me tell you, I had a, another desire. <clears throat> my God, my idol was to get out and make money and to have an exciting life. You don't do that in the ministry in case you don't know that. Now you know, I mean I suppose there are people who do, but I, I don't I don't think that uh, I think that there are ways to make money, more money, by people who are are who have drive and, and who who have ability that far exceeds that of being in the work of God. In any position, I, um, I was just reading. Uh, I was just reading somewhere of the, the salaries of certain people who are leaving their offices in Washington, D.C. as a result of this recent uh, election. People who are making two and three hundred thousand dollars a year, staff people. Incredible to me. That's an awful lot of money. But there are people who make it, and I don't envy them. My point is simply this, that there have been and there are people today who will presume to speak for God. And for whatever reason, I'm not sure, but I think it's because they feel like that gives power or that that gives some prestige and some standing in the eyes of people well you know I've learned a lesson I really have learned not to be too worried about what people think about me because I've learned they just don't Anytime we think people are thinking about us, we're pretty puffed up inside, because when you're out of sight, when I'm out of sight, you don't even think about me, and I know it, unless you want to talk about how rotten the sermon was today, or or, or something of that sort. People are so consumed by their own personal lives, and, and, and getting along, and making ends meet and... And and all the rest they're not concerned about me. Who am I? It's a lesson I have learned. And yet there are people who think. <clears throat> I saw this this past week I, I read some some incredible anonymous posts directed at one of the ministers that were sent to me. And I would not repeat the stuff. That was said about the minister. So much for image. God asked through Ezekiel, <clears throat> Ezekiel chapter 7. Let's turn back there. Moreover, the word of the Eternal came to me, he said, saying. And then he gives his vision, his, his uh, message. And uh, he tells of the time, coming down to about verse, uh, verse 16. But they that escape of them shall escape, and shall be on the mountains like doves of the valleys, all of them mourning every one iniqu- for his iniquity. All hands shall be feeble, and all knees shall be weak as water. They shall also gird themselves with sackcloth, and horror shall cover them, and shame shall be upon all faces, and boldness upon all their heads. They shall cast their silver in the streets, and their gold shall be removed. Their silver and their gold shall not be able to deliver them in the day of the wrath of the Eternal." They shall not satisfy their souls, neither shall they fill their bowels, because it is the stumbling block of their iniquity. Eating, and houses, and comforts, and pleasures. All of these are idols in the heart. They, they go right inside to the man. You know, the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 1 uh, I guess he was right where the seat of all this was going to be, and I think it uh, appropriate that the Apostle Paul would would address this matter of uh, <clears throat> idols in this uh, to this church, since this would be the fountainhead for a great deal of uh, idolatry that would uh, would flow from uh, that spot. And he, he addresses humanity. And he says, uh, where to break in? <clears throat> Let's start in verse 25 because he's, he's talking about after the, God having given them up to their uncleanness. <coughs> Wherefore, he said, he gave them up <clears throat> through the lust of their own hearts, who dishonor their own bodies between themselves, who change the the truth, rather, of God into a lie. It's possible to take the truth and and turn it into a lie. It's it's possible to take something that is holy and good and turn it into an object of idolatry. They changed the truth of God into a lie and worshipped and served the creature more than the Creator And yet people say the Bible doesn't address homosexuality. And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a reprobate mind to do those things which are not convenient, being filled with all unrighteousness "...fornication, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, debate, deceit, malignity, whisperers, backbiters, haters of God, despiteful, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, without understanding, covenant breakers, without natural affection, implacable, unmerciful, who, knowing the judgment of God, that they which commit such things are worthy of death, not only do the same but have pleasure in them that do them. I mean, what an indictment! Because of what's in the heart. Because of the idols in the heart. Second Thessalonians chapter 2. <clears throat> Paul said, God giving them up in wrath to, to their own lie. I, I, I think that's a marvelous way of stating it. God gave them up to their own lie. Because, you know, that way they will be corrected by their own idols and by their own doing. Our society is about to come, as someone I think was even said in the opening prayer... Our civilization is about to come undone because of our idols and our covetousness and our lusts. But of course, God is letting us bring it upon ourselves by our doing. You know, God had a great deal of love for humanity. When I think of what he has done, <clears throat> you know, he'd been with God the Father and the one who became Jesus Christ, had been together for all eternity, creating the earth, the heavens. The inc- I, you know, I, 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 the other day, someone sent me a, a website, a NASA website, I think it was, <clears throat> a photograph of the earth at night. Did any of you see that? It's taken from a satellite and it shows from uh, the around the entire globe the night pictures the United States at night looks like a black object with that that just filled with uh, pinpoints of light It's an awesome picture, and everywhere you you see that the developed Rich nations of the earth where, where they where there there is this wealth you find that at nighttime it's just they just glow in from from outer space an awesome picture and God created and gave us this beautiful planet and gave man the commission to dress it and keep it and look what we have done is Mr. Armstrong quoted a philosopher one time. He said, everything man's hand touches, he destroys. And it's so true. Everything our hand touches, apart from the inspiration and direction of God operating within his law, it is besmirched and destroyed. Because inside of our hearts, naturally, there are these idols, this idolatry, this looking to something other than to Almighty God, the Creator. Now, <clears throat> Jesus Christ's personal example, by His life and by what He endured and by what He taught, is an example of one Who emptied himself. He divested himself of his divinity. And all of those trappings. And all those benefits. That went with having. The power of almighty God. And he gave that up for you and me. And for all of humanity out there. Incredible. And, And he has known how rotten and how filthy humanity is because He created and observed. It's just mind-boggling. Jesus Christ made an observation in Luke chapter 16, I think it is. <clears throat> if though, if a man is faithful in that which is least, he'll be faithful also in that which is much. And he that is unjust... Check this. I think it's Luke Luke chapter 16. Luke 16, verse 10. And he that is unjust in the least is unjust also in the much. You know, God God has put us here to let us demonstrate what is inside the heart. Now, He has said... Uh, this earth is yours and all the the bounty except 10% of it is mine and and you you pay it to me you pay it back, you give it back it's mine, not for you to spend and not for you to decide how it's spent but it's mine God said that Now, every time I see a write-up about Mr. Armstrong, Worldwide Church of God, and all the rest, it says that uh, he he required that people give 30% of their money to the church, which is a bald-faced lie. Never was. Never happened. Not true. 10% is God's to be given to him. And if you don't, Malachi said, you are robbing him. It's just that simple. Why would one do it? Because of something inside the heart says, I need that money so that I can direct it here or I can spend it there on myself for this or that house or for a car or for, for whatever it may be. To try to put it away and perhaps so that that I can have security. Security in this world? Now, he also said you save 10% so that you can come to meet him. And worship him. And learn how to respect Him. Because that's what that Hebrew word that is translated in the old King James English fear is all about. It is learning how to respect God. Instead of all of these things that we naturally desire and lust after so much. You know, Christ knew, God knew... That if if we couldn't handle the little bit of silver, gold, precious things that come to us in this life. That he could not put us in awesome positions of power. So he said, if you therefore have not been faithful in the unrighteous mammon who will commit to your trust the true riches and if you've not been faithful in that which is another man's who shall give you that which is your own now I in directing the the ministry and church administration i i i'm aware that <clears throat> there are people who take advantage And it shows it shows what is inside here. When we take advantage of a position or an opportunity to um, misuse what is God's. I take that personally very seriously. <clears throat> Pharisees, verse fourteen says, who were covetous this is Luke 16 14 and the Pharisees also who were covetous heard all these things and they derided him it's all they could do they had to try to somehow solve their conscience and solve their feelings and cover up for what what they were feeling because they were guilty and so what did they, they do they derided him and he said unto them, You are they which justify yourselves before men, but God knows your heart, so don't try to fool him. For that which is highly esteemed among men is abomination in the sight of God. <clears throat> now, another common area of idolatry, in my opinion, is putting a person before God, <clears throat> a husband, a wife, children, friends, whoever it may be. And for this cause, Jesus Christ, in Luke 14, when we made our covenant with God, Jesus Christ said, if you are not willing to forsake father, mother, husband, wife, brother, sister, Even give up your own life for my sake. You are not fit for the kingdom of God. What is he saying? He is saying that we have to get rid of this inside the heart, this natural inclination which we have to please the self. The object is not to please the self, but to please God. And the the object is to please other people and serve them. Now, uh, that is, that was Jesus Christ's object. And not to do so is committing idolatry. Now, now the carnal tendency that we see around us today is to put a a a mate away for another rather than to be faithful. To him or her, that's that's what we see. What is it? over fifty percent of first marriages end in divorce today in America? And if I'm not mistaken, over it's somewhere between seventy and eighty percent of second marriages end in divorce today. Now I'm not pointing the finger at anybody because I know many of you have been divorced. And you are remarried. I'm not pointing the finger and condemning you. Please do not misunderstand me. I'm not. What I am saying is. That individuals. Who make a commitment. And who break that union. Because of lust. Or because of lack of commitment. On their part. In my opinion. Have put an idol. Before God that's it and that's to be repented of God forgives I believe God forgives us when we repent but I believe we have to come face to face with the issue first before he does forgive us we have to recognize it and repent of it before he forgives Jesus Christ came to serve, and <clears throat> he did not come to be served. He emptied himself in order to serve. Now, I understand his example is, is something you and I cannot duplicate. We don't have it in us. But he, in us, can help us at least eliminate this self centeredness, this selfishness that exists which is idolatry because it is putting ourself before God. (coughs) You know, in my opinion, I, I may be wrong. God knows I don't. I can't judge because it's not for me to judge. But I think that we in God's church who have been given God's spirit have a problem In our manner of observing the first and second commandments. Because I don't think we have looked inside and associated some of our selfishness and some of our self centeredness and some of our actions and way of doing business with one another as being idolatry. Let me give you an example. Let's say I'm your boss. I have power over you. And I have an opinion. And that opinion is that you have to drive Plymouths. You can't drive Chryslers. You can't drive BMWs. You cannot drive Mercedes. You can't drive a Cadillac. You've got to drive Plymouths because that's God's way. Now, God doesn't say that. I defy anybody to tell me in there what kind of a chariot... Outside of a fiery chariot, the only chariot I know of is a fiery one, and I don't think you want to ride in one of those. Now, for me to try to impose, as God's will, what car you drive would be presumptuous of me, would it not? And would I would be putting myself before God years ago when my mother died i was handling my mother and father's estate <coughs> and uh, this old country lawyer school teacher philosopher legislator i mean this man had done it all and he was a good friend of my father's for from when they were boys and he was the attorney handling my father's estate for us <coughs> because he was such a good friend and I was sitting at lunch with him one day <clears throat> because doing business out of his office, he, lunchtime came, he just said, well, come eat, let's have lunch, and walked into, over to his house, and his wife put soup on the table, and we had soup and crackers. And I had this bowl of soup in front of me, and he said, he asked me a question about the Bible, I don't remember what it was, and I, I gave him the answer by saying, God says, and then <clears throat> gave my answer. And he slammed his fist on the table so hard my cup of soup jumped about that high. And he, and I mean, he yelled at me across the table. He said, "Now there you go, like all these preachers presuming to speak for God." And I knew he was right. I mean, it doesn't take me very long to examine a horseshoe when it's hot. <clears throat> and uh, I said, "You're right." You are absolutely right. What I should have said is, the Bible says, and quoted the chapter and verse, he said, now that's better. (laughs) I have never forgotten that lesson, and I never will. Because it was true. If you ask a question of someone, and they give you an answer, it's their answer, not God's answer. If they give you scripture, that's God's answer. And... If they give you something else, that's their answer and their opinion. That's how I see it. Now, I may be wrong. And I'd like for somebody to show me if I'm wrong. Now, I understand that God may inspire me to speak. But when I say, God says, I had better not use my own words. I'd better use these. Because I don't like being chastised like that. There are three broad categories of people in the world. You know, there are believers, and Daniel 11 speaks of those. They do exploits. They're doers. They are achievers. There are believers, as described in Daniel 11:32, who do exploits, and they are doing the work of God. And then there are unbelievers, and those are people who are ignorant. They don't know what's going on. They don't have a clue. They don't have an understanding. So, okay, those people, the billions of them out there, have no knowledge of God. So we need to try to approach them and and wake them up if they will be. And then there is a third category of those who deny God. And you know what? They aren't worth too much time because... You can't wake them up. They deny God. They're unworthy. I'm not saying that you don't try. But I'm just saying. Those who deny God. The scripture says they are fools. The fool has said in his heart. There is no God. Repeatedly. Psalm 14.1. Psalm 53.1. The fool has said in his heart. There is no God. They have an idol in their heart and you will not dislodge and remove that one but for those who are believers those who are producers I believe you point it out to them and they want to do something about it Satan has developed a form of idolatry among believers that's very subtle he seduces us into setting ourselves up and judging others by ourselves. Now you tell me, you tell me if that is biblical. Can you think of a scripture where God says, I want you to judge people by your standard of righteousness. You show me that so that I can then correct my thinking. Because I don't see it. It just isn't in the book. How do we judge people? And what do we do? Well, we don't just openly say, well, you look at me because I'm perfect, and so therefore, if you just follow my example, you'll you'll be okay. No, we, we presume to use Paul's words. Follow me as I follow Christ. But we emphasize, follow me if we're not careful. Now, I understand that we are to follow leadership following Christ. But be very careful we as members of the body of Christ who have God's Spirit when we are dealing with other people out there we must be very careful not to convey to them, you follow me because I'm, I've got it right. That self-righteous spirit, it's it's idolatrous in my opinion. I would rather see you say, you follow Christ's example and cite the chapter and verse. You know that's what Jesus did throughout his ministry? Time and again, when Jesus Christ did something, he said, you Give the glory to the Father. He always pointed toward the Father. He never presumed to take the praise to himself. Not that I see it. Now, how do we do it? Well, we do it by directly, at least, by abusive control. People who are into controlling people. Controlling is a form of abuse. We do it indirectly by manipulative controlling. And we do it by speaking evil of other persons. This is wrong. This, in my opinion, is idolatrous. It is a form of idolatry. We are setting ourselves up as judge of other people. Jesus Christ said, judge not that you be not judged. He said, who, who are you to judge another man's servant? And he said, "Paul through Paul, judge nothing before the time. I know we can justify by pointing toward Paul and, and, and using Paul's statement as, uh, you follow me as I follow Christ. But I think the Apostle Paul was saying with emphasis, you follow Christ. And when I'm following Christ, you can follow me. In effect, John 14, verse 10, Jesus said, Believe you that I am in the Father, and the Father in me. The words that I speak unto you, I speak not of myself, but the Father that dwells in me, he does the works. And this is consistent with the example of Jesus Christ throughout His ministry and His teaching. He always pointed to the Father. I won't go through all the Scriptures, but again and again and again, Jesus Christ pointed toward the Father. Now, I do detect at, at the time of the final Passover when Jesus knew His hour had come, and Jesus knew that that he was about to suffer death and to go to the father then he did begin to point the disciples to himself you notice that he began because very soon now Jesus Christ was going to be god again i i am not persuaded of this statement that <clears throat> i've heard used uh, particularly in the nature of God talk, fully God, fully man. I I'm not. I don't know for sure what the answer to that that is. I know this. He was fully human because he died. But I I read that he emptied himself of his divinity, and I read that he was tempted in all points, like as we. And with God, there isn't even any temptation. So therefore, how could he have been, quote, fully God, end quote, I ask. Uh, But there are some... It's one of those questions that does need to be researched a bit, perhaps. Now let me go over a few forms of idolatry. In conclusion... Since time is about to run out, and um, worshiping a false god in the place of God is clearly idolatrous. Pure and simple. Two, worshiping a false god by bowing down before an idol as a representation of God is idolatry. Pure and simple. I mean I don't have time to go back and show examples of this in Daniel and so on but you know you know it's true otherwise why would Shadrach Meshach and Abednego have to go through this trial with this this ordeal with Nebuchadnezzar So therefore using an idol as a representation of God to bow down before an idol is wrong 3 Putting a person in the place of God is wrong. <clears throat> Jesus always pointed to the Father because the Father was God. Four, putting one's self, that is, ego. You know, how many of the words that have self in them do you know have a real good connotation? Selfish, self-centered. I mean, all those are real good attributes of human beings, aren't they? Self-centeredness and selfishness. Selfless is a good word, but uh, not too often do we practice selflessness. Putting oneself then, or ego, before God <clears throat> is idolatry. Putting one's own thoughts about God out there as God's thoughts, I believe, is idolatry. And uh, doesn't matter who you are. if If you presume to speak for God in contrary to what He has spoken, then, in my opinion, that is idolatrous. Putting one's opinions, judgments, and actions before others as God's will, apart from and contrary to the Word of God, is presumptuous and idolatrous. And imposing one's will by force as the will of God is idolatrous. I was just reading Beattie's ecclesiastical history uh, again. <clears throat> I, I read that many years ago and I, I was always amused by Beede's characterization of the, the church in England. <clears throat> he said, and uh, and I have to paraphrase a whole lot, but he talks about the Scots and when the Scots, uh, I, I mean, you never know, he, he, he's sometimes talking about the Irish uh, I presume the Northern Irish. But they were an obstinate lot, apparently. They just could not get Easter right. And so this is about 650, I believe, uh, A.D. And he says, in essence, well, the Scots have finally, finally uh, gotten Easter right. They have finally gotten in line with with Rome. You see, there were some in Scotland, according to his statement who observed it the way John, the beloved apostle, observed it on the 14th of Nisan. And that just had to be eradicated out of those dumb, stupid, idiotic, foolish Scots, in his view. And over and over again, well, at last, finally, the Scots have gotten it right. And I don't know if they ever did finally embrace and accept Easter? I presume they did, but uh, uh, I suspect that many of them didn't. I think they probably went to their graves keeping the Passover and, in, in lieu of, or rather than, I should say, uh, than the pagan Easter, a form of idolatry. God has called us to empty ourselves of our vanity. He, is, he, is, he wants us to focus on him and on his way and get rid of the selfishness and the ego that motivates the human mind and the human heart. In a research on the subject of practices, idolatrous practices historically, you find that they, they will tell you that the use of idols goes so far back that they cannot discern whether it was initially a religious urge or some other kind of an, uh, a motive that drove the early practitioners of the use of idols. A psychological need. <clears throat> As a matter of fact, one scholar says he thinks that, or thought, that it was a form of play just as little children who played with dolls and and other uh, toys, that these were these were just manifestations of adults who grew up and they still had to have their dolls. They clung to their dolls and they wanted to play with their dolls. And then they thought of ways that they could worship God through playing with their dolls. I don't think so. I think it all goes back to what was put into the heart of the man and the woman when they succumbed to the inspiration, temptation of Satan the devil in the garden. And from that time on, man has loved the idols in his heart.